In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There is need of only one thing. I know most of us are probably in a place where whatever it is we're going through, we're pulled in about a thousand different directions. And it's certainly a wonderful and helpful reminder to remember to focus on the one thing. But I think it's more than just helpful. It's more than just a life skill. Time and time again, what we hear, what we read in scripture, what we see in our tradition is a reminder not just to be focused on those things that many of which are good. I always get confused about, is it Mary or Martha? My one critique of scripture is, could one of them, did they have to both be named with an M? Because I get lost in the two of them. But, but remember what Mary sees and what she knows, which is focus on the one thing, the one thing. And you'll find that you won't be drawn into other places. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to lift up actually a symbol of something that is exceptionally good at nailing one thing. Saying one thing when it could have gone in many different directions. And that is a ubiquitous symbol. Something that we see all over the place these days. And that is the flag of Ukraine. So you've, I'm sure you've seen it. You can probably tell me exactly what, what, what elements are in a Ukrainian flag. Blue and yellow, blue and gold. Good, very good. Um, you've, you've seen this. So does anybody know what those sim- symbolize? Sun. Actually, excuse me, blue is on top, right? I can always get them confused. Um, the blue is across the top. Gold across the bottom, blue sky, fields of wheat, fields of wheat. One thing, wheat, which if you know anything about Ukraine, which now many of us know a lot more than we did before, the one thing for Ukraine, especially when you're talking about that image of national symbolism, is wheat. Ukraine is very much the breadbasket of the whole region. It's how their people eat. But of course, we now know that so much of the world, especially the developing world, depends on grain that is grown in Ukraine and then shipped elsewhere. So now that symbol that I think is really beautiful when we think of it in those terms, that symbol that is quite beautiful becomes something a little more bittersweet because now it also says something about who will not have food. As this crisis turns into a global food crisis, which I think is coming, that as the fall turns to winter, we'll begin to see that that grain that is stuck in Ukrainian silos and stuck in Ukrainian ports will not get to the places where it needs to go. Focus on the one thing. Now, whenever we read about wheat in scripture or or grain, of course, we are talking about something concrete and real, but we're also talking about justice because this being a staple crop, this being something about how God provides for us and allows us to have what we need to eat, to feed our families, to live and to thrive. It's more than just about one commodity. When we read about wheat, What we're reading about is something about justice. And this morning we read it in the prophet Amos. 
who has a bit to say about the wheat market. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land, who buy, poor, who buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling the sweepings of the wheat. Now this was written almost 3,000 years ago. And yet we're still stuck in here, aren't we? And though millions, though nations churn and economic models shift, we seem to see this story play out time and time again, where the greedy always seem to find a way, and the poor, no matter what the economic system is, the poor seem always to be shut out. Those three millennia ago, Amos bore witness to a growing gap between rich and poor, between those who had and those who did not. And in so doing, raised a question that we've been trying to scurry away from ever since. Raised a question we've, hit, we've we tried to wriggle out of however we could, and that question is this. What does it mean for our covenant with God, this special relationship with God, what does it mean if we're treating the poor like this? It had... A special, uh, it had profound resonance for the people of Israel whose whole identity was around this covenantal relationship with God. What does it now mean for this covenantal relationship if we are treating the poor, the marginalized, the, vul the, the, the vulnerable like this? Amos spoke out in a time of inequity. But he also spoke out in a time of spiritual revival. Did you know that? This was a time when prophets, a whole school of prophets, had this crazy idea that the covenant between God and God's people, that that, that meant the people of God had some obligations in this too. And they weren't just ritual obligations. What, what, go, what mat your heart mattered and your actions mattered as well it wasn't that the people of God needed to behave a little bit better that they needed to kind of fine-tune their policies just a little bit it was that the covenant itself was now in jeopardy you could go to church all you want. Obviously, they didn't call it church. But you could go to church all you want. You could make all the sacrifices you could. But that was not going to solve this problem. And not only what was the problem was hardness of heart. And the problem was greed. And the problem was forgetting this beautiful covenant. And all of that was undermining who they were. And what they had was not going to last if they did not change. So if this chapter from Amos had its own title, it might be something along the lines of, folks, the party's over. God would no longer spare Israel the consequence of injustice. God points to, it begins by pointing to what Amos is holding. So in the beginning of this passage, Amos is holding a basket, and in that basket there is summer fruit, the, the best of what a nice, bright, beautiful sun, summer has to offer. 
He says, what are you holding there, Amos? And Amos says, well, I am holding a basket of summer fruit. But in the Hebrew, the, the word summer fruit actually sounds almost exactly the same. It doesn't translate in English at all. It, it sounds almost the same as the end, the finale, the rolling of the credits, the end of the show. So when God says to, to Amos, what are you holding there? And Amos says, I'm holding a basket of summer fruit. Anybody who knew that language said, wow, that actually sounds a lot like he's saying, I'm holding on to the last threads of this. I'm holding on to the very end and saying to Israel, the harvest, this harvest that you have drawn, that's it. It looks great, but the rot inside is going to become apparent pretty soon. You have pursued profit over people and you have done it systematically and now this party is coming to a close. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, which in today's world we see through redlining and climate injustice and healthcare access and so much more. Hear this, you who bring ruin to the poor of the land, who say, when will the new moon be over? so that we may sell grain. And when is this Sabbath, this terrible Sabbath going to end so that we can go back to business and put our wheat back for up for sale? So we're back again to grain and wheat, but I want you to think not just about the injustice of this, but also focusing on the one thing. Because that's what Sabbath was all about. That's what the new moon was all about. It was supposed to teach the people of God to take a moment, take a day, take a, take a, take a holiday to remember, set down your labors, set down the scales so that you can remember the one thing, the thing that matters, the relationship with the Holy One. But that's not what they wanted. That's not, that wasn't the one thing for them. They wanted to load the scales and securitize the sweepings of wheat that in God's economy weren't supposed to be given a price. They were supposed to be set aside so that the people of God who had nothing else to eat could sweep them up and have something at the end of the day. They instead wanted to shortchange, to give less wheat for the money, to engage in financial trickery, which to our ears, we might be tempted to say something like, let the buyer beware, right? You know, there's always going to be some tipping of scales. But what this really meant was that people would go hungry. What this really meant that those who could not pay their debts would have to sell themselves or their children into indentured servitude. No, they wanted to, to end the Sabbath as early as they could. They did their observing, but then they couldn't wait for it to end because time is money. And if money is, is what you extract from people, then suddenly Sabbath, which is supposed to change your whole relationship with time, doesn't really matter at all anyway. And so Amos's basket of fruit, the end, was deceptive. It looked delicious. It was filled with, with peaches and blueberries that make us think, hey, cobbler's coming. But no, it instead turned to ash 
as soon as anybody touched it. Don't be deceived by the luster, Amos said. This was the end. Sometimes, though, you have to see the end. And you have to name it and even proclaim it so that we can begin to see something new. The witness of the prophets, this crazy school of prophets 3,000 years ago, wasn't just that we had fallen away from the plumb lines of justice and equity. We had, but that wasn't the whole story. It was to point out that systemic injustice, in this case, the leveraging of wheat to enslave the poor, this kind of thing was not simply an economic problem. It wasn't a governance problem or a political problem or even an ethical problem. What the prophets were saying was that it was a spiritual problem. By taking this and rooting it in the covenant, Amos was saying, yes, all of these things matter. We need to get the scales right. But at the heart of it, this is a spiritual problem because we as a people have lost the sense of what the one true thing is. And we've instead taken on a whole different thing entirely. Amos's words were hard to hear. And yet they give us some breadcrumbs to help us find our way out of it. If growing wealth disparity, which is a reality, if the coming famine, which may well be a reality as well, whether through unjust systems at home or warfare abroad, point to a spiritual crisis, then that tells us not that there's an easy answer, but that we must draw nearer to those living waters of our faith as a place to start. It will give us the grace to begin, the wisdom to see injustice and to name it, and the strength to persist, as well as some pretty clear expectations of how we are to regard our neighbor, each and every one of our neighbors. As Christians, we recover our compassion and we remember God's promise to be with us and especially God's promise to be with those who are poor and those who are suffer suffering. We remember, remember that by focusing on the one thing. And here I'm talking directly about the gospel. Martha is distracted by many things. They are all good things, every last one of them. But Mary in this story is only concerned with the one thing, with being there, with being in the presence of Jesus, with knowing the love of God that reminds her who she is and who she is in relationship with all of God's children. Think about this. Can you imagine Mary, after sitting at the feet of Jesus in that beautiful moment, then, then going out into the world and in any way possible harming or oppressing another human being. She was focused on the one thing. In fact, I have to imagine that she then is go, goes out into the world with a hunger to see the dignity, to honor the human dignity of every single person that she met. That ending that Amos proclaimed was real. It was like summer fruit that was quickly turning sour. Yet God is always 
calling us to renewal, always. To taste again the goodness and the bounty of creation and the sweetness of faith. And that renewal starts in an unlikely yet life-giving place. Here at the feet of Jesus. Amen.